0: Good evening. I was thinking in preparing for this talk about the different uh, ideas we can get about what it means to have an open heart. and. I had a number of different uh, images come up in my mind. and I thought of uh, stories of various saints that uh, were taught to me or read to me when I was a child, growing up in the Christian tradition. And you know, some of these people were very hard to believe, actually. And some of them seem more normal, but some of them seemed uh, really far-fetched. And even people where you would kind of like question, like, why was this person picked? Why was this person picked to be seen as a saint? You know, maybe it was uh, political. Um, But this idea of there being an archetype of a being with an open heart, a saint or a sage or an enlightened one, runs through uh, all spiritual traditions. There's some version of this. And when we consider the possibilities for ourselves, this might seem like something that's like just so completely far out there that It's ridiculous to even take it seriously. Or we could think of it as um, something that uh, we do want to aspire to, but it comes with a particular uh, understanding of what that would be like. You know, we might think that that means that, you know, uh, It would be like an idealized version of ourselves you know like us but without any of our bad habits or personal quirks or um you know every all the rough edges would be completely buffed off and we would be well adjusted and you know we would have no neuroses left and you know everybody would love us and you know our magnificence would shine forth and Being acknowledged by the world, and you know, but we'd still be modest. (laughs) So we might think of it like that, or we might, you know, have kind of like uh, some counter uh, conditioning around these uh, spiritual models, and you know, think of it like, oh, you know, a saint or you know, somebody who's holy you know, it sounds like somebody who's got, like, no boundaries, or, you know, you could never, you know, really be who you, who you are, Uh, you know, you would never be able to say no to people, you know, they would, like, always be wanting stuff from you, and, you know, it's just, like, too sugary, too saccharine, too, uh, too unreal, too hard to believe, too impossible in all ways. So, too pastel, too sweet, not going there, not going to try for that. You know, a kind of aversion to uh, any kind of idea of potential, high-level potential uh, as part of the spiritual path, at least for you. Or, you know, maybe when you think about... uh, what it would be like to have an open heart. It just doesn't seem like a very safe thing, you know? There's so much pain and suffering uh, in the world. There's pain and suffering in our own mind streams and in our um, experience of others. Uh, Who Who is the philosopher that said, uh, hell is other people, you know? And I'm sure with this individual, other people were saying, you know, hell is this guy? (laughs) But it can be very difficult, you know, to relate some of these models or aspirations to ourselves as we actually are as humans. So in thinking about where our own particular spiritual path goes, using this context, this Buddhist context... You know, there's some uh, parameters that are stated or context that's stated that can also be somewhat confusing because it's talked about in terms of uh, wise effort, you know, and wise effort is like compared to unwise effort. And, uh, you know, this wise effort, which is part of the Eightfold Path, has, for instance... Four great efforts within it. You know, the wise effort to prevent the arising of unskillful and unwholesome states and actions, and the letting go of unskillful and unwholesome states and actions, and then the wise effort to summon and develop and extend the wholesome and skillful. So, you know, it's clearly saying, well, some things are not to be cultivated. They're to be let go of. Some things are to be cultivated. They're to be developed. You know, and it can sound uh, very binary in a way, very uh, dualistic. You know, the Dhammapada uh, also talks uh, in these terms in certain sections. For instance, it says, uh, make an island for yourself get right to work, become wise. When you are purged from impurity and free from mental taint, you will reach the noble state. And that could make it sound like, <clears throat> you know, you're doing uh, excising this stuff from your mind stream, you know, taking you know, a sharp implement and carving away large parts of what you actually do experience in the effort to uh, become one of the noble ones. So these these statements, if they're taken alone, don't seem to have much use for what's not skillful and what's unwholesome. And yet when we do meditation practice, of course, what we see is that the unskillful and unwholesome states are frequently present. Right. Sometimes it's can seem like that's the only thing that's happening, even for long periods of time. It's just one version or another of uh these things that you know we're being told we shouldn't be cultivating. Uh oh. <laughs> So the question is, how do we deal with this material? You know, especially since uh, it's very clear that some version or another of, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, or all three, are going to be present in our mindstream all the way up to the point of complete awakening, which for most of us is probably, you know, quite a long ride. So then the question is, so how do we deal with the fact of the unwholesome and the unskillful? So, you know, one, one way that uh, we may be inclined to go about this is to do a kind of perfectionism, right? We've heard what, where it's, what it's supposed to be like, which is the, the first misunderstanding, right? because what's being said in the conversation around wise effort isn't what it should be like, like right now. It's a statement about where we are uh, orienting, where we are journeying to, right? It's not saying it should be like this right now. So being clear about what we're cultivating is skillful and it's wise view. But the, you know, if we take a dualistic understanding of this, then it can lead us into a kind of resistance to, and a non-acceptance of what we are actually experiencing in the present. And you know, that's uh, a definition of suffering, right? There's reality, and then there's the position we're taking, <laughs> which is different. Suffering—that's the definition of suffering. So, you know, we, we can't get rid of this stuff by cutting it out since it's actually there in the mind stream. And we can't really ignore it because unseen, it trips us up. It operates anyway, and it kind of uh, is running the show. So then the question is, is there some way in which this ignorance... This not knowing, this unawakened, unenlightened stuff that's so much a part of uh, our mindstream cannot be a complete impediment to practice since it's there anyway, right? So then the question is, how do we practice with what isn't wholesome and what isn't skillful in and of itself? You know, when we uh, start to get a little bit more continuous with our practice, and we start to notice what is arising in the mind, you know, a little more continuously than we have previously, sometimes it can be a bit of a shock, right? As I uh, was talking about in the last Dharma talk I gave, You know, there's a lot of really weird stuff in there, right? So it can be kind of shocking in a way. And the fact that it's shocking really points in the direction of the importance of having a wise attitude towards this, right? An attitude of metta, an attitude of compassion in the mind, for the reality of what is there you know to not go to war against our direct experience it's very interesting you know when you you look at the uh, two practices of metta and the practice of insight vipassana The ultimate stage in the practice of metta is a mind that has equal goodwill and loving friendliness towards all beings, regardless of whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, regardless of whether they're known or unknown. Complete equality of kindness and care and love towards all without exception. That's the developed mind of Metta, the fully developed mind of Metta. The fully developed late stage of insight practice, high equanimity is a mind that can open to, can connect with all experience exactly as it is, Without exception, with a friendly, open, interested awareness. And from that stability and openness and clear seeing, non distorted mind, a mind that's no longer reacting or moving with any experience, opening to the unconditioned can happen. So, You tell me, are those two different minds or is that one? And this really points to the importance of metta practice in general and the attitude of metta in insight practice because we're not going to punish ourselves into awakening. Another point is if we're very identified with what we're experiencing, meaning if there's a very strong self-sense present in the practice, it becomes very, very difficult because there's always something going on related to what it means about us if we have a particular experience, right? If we have an experience of anger, if we have an experience of greed, if we have an experience of uh, feeling aggressive, if we have, you know, a lot of sleepiness, if we, you know, feel a lot of resistance, if any of these states come up, you know, we, we kind of turn it like into evidence at, uh, you know, the trial of our Uh, our own worthiness right it's like oh you know good sitting today got you know the inflation comes along oh you know bad sitting bad meaning you know whatever whatever is not the imagined preferred version uh you know then it all falls down you know then we feel bad about uh you know, this uh, self we've put in the middle of things and uh, the spiral into, uh, you know, feeling hopeless and uh, fi- feeling a lack of confidence uh, starts to, to really pick up momentum. But now here's, a, here's another version of how uh, we can think of these, uh, this binary You know, what if we thought of this, um, I'll just say it, goodness that we're pursuing, this beauty that we seek to develop, this enlightenment that we desire. What if we thought of that not as something that's like out there that we have to get? I mean, what if the door the access point to this is uh, hinged so that it opens uh, inwardly. The door opens inwardly, you know it's not hinged to open outwardly. If if we're trying to get out to get it, it's not out there, it's in here. (laughs) It's in here and it has everything to do with what you directly experience. You know, if we have this, uh, have an idealized version of what we should be experiencing, there's some dangers with that besides the fact that it doesn't work. And some of the dangers are, you know, we try to manufacture an ideal You know, you could call this create a state. You know, create a state. Uh, You know, we can try like just leapfrogging over what we directly experience, right? Just kind of like, whoop, go buy that one. You know, go look for something else. Whoa, I don't wanna go there. Even though it's what's predominant. You know, in our lives in general, we can do something called you know, the spiritual bypass, which is you know, kind of like instead of dealing with things that are necessary for us to deal with in, in our lives uh, in order to be a grounded uh, human being that's you know, in touch with the full reality of things, we just you know, decide we're going to float off on you know, a, a cloud of uh, incense or something. So, you know, if we have an have a imagined outcome or an ideal version of what should be occurring, there's a kind of craving going on there, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be conscious. You know, very often it's not conscious. It's just like this feeling that it should be something different than what it is. Now, you might not be able to say what it should be, but it should be different. Or maybe you can really say what it should be. You know, it's very specific, you know, I should be able to be on the breath, I should be able to be there the whole hour, there should be X number of thoughts in the sitting, you know, Uh, I shouldn't be feeling restlessness, I shouldn't be, you know, sleepy, I shouldn't be, you know, I should be like this, I shouldn't be like this. So, you know, that's a kind of like straining to hold things, uh, create a model of experience and then straining to create it straining to hold on to it and ignoring the cross currents that are actually there to the to uh, that attempt. And you know the result is the actual creation of suffering not the, not the end of suffering because as i said last week you know when the causes and conditions are there for a certain experience to be present it's gonna be present, right? It's like given the totality of the factors that are there, this is, this is the experience. So a wiser, a much wiser way to think about this is that instead of pract- practice being the manufacturing of anything, It instead is the illumination, both of what is skillful and of what is not skillful. And connection with both of these things is the path to awakening. Equal connection to both of these things is the path to awakening. And again, this is not to say that we don't make the discernment between uh, the direction We're going. We're still understanding on a big picture level that we're cultivating the skillful and we're letting go of the unskillful. We're relying on the power, the liberating power of mindfulness, which has the capacity when it connects with any object to strengthen in the mind stream wholesome qualities and to weaken in the mind stream unwholesome ones. But for mindfulness to be present with both types of states, in some way we have to be open to experiencing the full range of what's present. Now, you know, the challenge with this strategy is that, you know, let's face it we do have favorites right you know just in the same way with metapractice where you know you, you kind of start with you know self or someone that's you know easy to love you know we have certain states that you know are easy to love states of concentration you know states of calm states of um, mindfulness states of clarity states of and these are good these are good. But just like with, uh, you know, metta practice, you know, the, the near enemy, the near enemy of metta is desire, you know, a kind of craving that can kind of get in there and, mm, you know, glom onto, and then start to try to manipulate experience to, out of a, um, a kind of greed in the mind to keep things from changing or to make them be the way we want them to be. Or, you know, we can, you know, using again, the analogy, the meta analogy, you know, they can can be kind of uh, states that we experience or things that we experience in insight practice can be a a little bit more like neutral people, you know? Like the ones that you don't really see. I mean, it's not like you really have anything against them, but they're not particularly interesting. Uh, you know, they're not dramatic. Uh, they're kind of just not seen. They're not present. They're not really of, really of interest. You know, they're not compelling in the way things are that are really pleasant or really unpleasant. The neutral zone, you know, just Neutral very important field of practice subtle sometimes and then of course we have you know the the states that are analogous to the the difficult people or the enemy right and uh you know just the buddhist personality uh types of course tell us a little bit about this right i mean we all have greed, hatred, and delusion uh, in the mind stream. <clears throat> and we all have all three. But, you know, we tend to be specialists, right? So just to briefly talk about this, you know, if, if you're a specialist in craving, if that's, you know, the, the propensity that you have when you kind of fall out of balance... <clears throat> There's going to be a lot of attraction to what's pleasant, you know a lot of wanting, a lot of tendency to hold on, no. um, a lot of getting lost in what's pleasant when it's uh, strong if you're a person who um, you know is primarily deluded, there's going to be confusion uh, and difficulty about connecting uh, with things in general, you know, an uncertainty about what's really going on and what you should do next, you know, what kind of doubt about everything (laughs) sometimes. Um, You know, if you're a person that uh, is predominantly aversive, um, then you're going to know exactly what it is you don't want right and there's going to be uh, an effort uh, in the mind to do something about what's unpleasant or unwanted uh, which can take the form of either uh, fleeing it or attempting to flee from it or you know uh, you know if you're the more uh, aggressive sort of aversive mind you know a full frontal assault upon it in order to get it to do something to make it you know uh, you know shape up so those are the those are the three tendencies, you know, and, and we can see them in our mind when we have these various uh, types of types of experience. And I'll come back uh, to these three types later in the in the talk. So, you know, when we meet these states, when these states come up, and we have an agenda in regard to them other than just to acknowledge their presence and open to them in a a balanced way, the war is on, right? There's at least two different things going on than in the practice, right? There's what's actually happening, and then there's all the... um, You know, manipulation, uh, tinkering, uh, rejection, uh, editing, striving, uh, correcting, um, on top of it, right? Big time split focus, usually with a big, you know, me in in the middle of it, (laughs) suffering, uh, but expending a lot of effort. So then the question is, so is there a way to actually use unskillful states in service of our liberation? Since they're there, right? And they're gonna be there in some version or another. So when I I was thinking about this today, I did a little research, a little Dharma research. and I found an article called uh, How to Compost Chicken Manure. (laughs) And it said, you know, one of the first principles was uh, never put uncomposted chicken manure in your garden, it will burn. And, you know, it was encouraging. And it said, you know, chicken manure can be composted with other materials. Compost using chicken manure is able to hold exceptional amounts of water, which can help your garden. This spiritual practice, this spiritual process, This is a transformational process that uses what you've got. Okay? Now, I'm not saying the mind stream is always like chicken manure. But you've got it. Use it. Okay? Okay, this is what they said to do. Number one prepare a container (laughs) here we are we've got the container right we've got the form we've got the teachings we've got the environment we have the teachers you have what you need you have a container okay so then here's the important part you know to the chicken manure or to these hindrances in the mind stream we must add other materials right so it says you know you need to add to the container various materials to help the manure decompose more quickly right mindfulness Mindfulness, (laughs) Mindfulness, <laughs> mindfulness. Okay, this is, the, this is the primary ingredient to pair with what's going on in the mind stream because it, it's the activator. You know, it activates the whole process of turning this from suffering, unconscious or conscious suffering into something that actually serves your awakening Okay, it says you should uh, rotate the materials in the compost pile, right? So you, you turn it over, right? You turn it over. Investigation. You know it says as part of the process that you know you should add more manure and more materials at least three times. I'd say, no problem meeting the threshold, right? (laughs) And then it says, you know, allow the compost bin to sit undisturbed for about two to six months. Afterwards, it will have a sweet earthy scent. (laughs) Now you can add it to your garden Right. so a little bit of fun with this, but it, it points to an important principle, which is the awakening comes through connection with this, the right kind of connection with this. It doesn't come through trying to push it away, trying to chop it away, trying to ignore it. This is the field of awakening everything that you can experience within the body and the mind it happens no place else so you could say you know the way out of suffering is a better relationship with our experience in the moment friendlier more meta infused more interested more accepting, more allowing, more receptive, less judgmental, less self-bound, closer, more mindful, more consistently connected, non-identified, without preference or bias for what that experience is. So, you know, you could say uh, it's about instead of uh, getting different experiences, it's more about getting in wiser relationship with what is there to be known. It's about the angle of entry into what's present. So you can make skillful use of unskillful arisings which is good because there's so many of them, right? You can make skillful use of unskillful arising. And this is really where you start to see the inherent creativity of this process of spiritual awakening. That if the angle of entry into experience is skillful, is correct, Things purify themselves. There doesn't need to be, you know, the self doing what it imagines is necessary to do. So, you know, when each experience is met with the same attitude of balanced and connected acceptance. Then a virtuous spiral happens. Reactivity in the mind stream decreases. Clarity of mind increases. Mindfulness quickens and strengthens. Energy builds, interest builds, clinging lessens, calm opens, equanimity grows, and this cycle goes on and on. But the quicker you can get to being non-preferential about what it is you're experiencing, the stronger support you can give to this uh, cycle strengthening. Because remember, as I said before, you know mindfulness is the universal uh, remedy. It strengthens what's wholesome, it decreases what's unwholesome. I was walking the other day and I saw a I was walking in an area where there are a a lot of rocks by the side of the road uh, as there are around here. And on top of this one rather large rock was a uh, uh, a pine tree. And the pine tree uh, maybe looked like it was two to three years old. And what really drew my eye to it was, you know, looking at this uh, tree on the rock, there really was like hardly any soil there. You know, it was just like very, very, you know, thin. And um, I thought, wow, how did that ever get going there? How did that manage to grab hold with, you know, so little uh, to nurture it at the beginning of its life? And as I looked a little further, I, I saw, oh, well, you know, just the way it started, um, you know, it created a little pocket and then, you know, some uh, leaves and uh, other things collected there and then they decomposed and it made a little bit of soil and, you know, then the roots started growing and, oh, it looks like, you know, one of the roots somehow found, uh, you know, like a crack uh, into the rock or maybe the root, Actually, made the crack into the rock, and it followed, uh, followed that uh, tap root and it, you know it's pulling water from someplace down there, and maybe it's connecting to some soil down there. And I thought, for some reason, uh, the image really struck me, because it seemed to suggest, you know, we can start without feeling that there's a lot there to work with. We can start with what's there. It can be just a little, a little bit of something where we can grab hold and connect and open and allow and receive. You know, we don't have to imagine that we need to be able to, like, you know, go to uh, no defilements, no calaces, you know, kind of leapfrog over the whole process. You know, can we work in trust with what's there? you know the little little small pine kind of creating its own eco- ecology for it that would support its own growth that's what you're doing you're creating your own ecology of mind by how you're relating to what you experience You know, this, uh, this theme, this theme about, you know, finding a way in difficulty, finding a creative use for difficulty, uh, trusting the fruitful darkness. This is part of every spiritual path. You know, it's not a light-only journey. How could it be, given the full range of what we experience as human beings. How could it be a light only journey? You know, this is all about bringing light forward where there has been none, bringing the skillful to the unskillful, making the mind stream conscious, with the right context and the right angle of entry purifies itself. No, just experiences, no ownership towards them, just experience, but complete responsibility to practice wise husbandry towards all conditions which arise. You know, taking responsibility for the composting. You know, I said I would uh, go back to the the three major types. And I'll do that for a while. You know, the the path for someone who is primarily um, a greed or a craving type of person moves along in a way where the mind starts to notice the tendency to look for what's pleasant and to grab it and to hold it, to try to keep it. Has a kind of thirsting, kind of restlessness a looking for something, a wanting something, maybe not even knowing what is wanted, but a wanting. When this kind of mind learns to allow for what's pleasant, to see the craving, to see the attachment, to allow pleasant experience to go away, just like all experiences must, to notice when there's resistance to letting pleasant go, to see the suffering in that, To begin to be willing to notice what is other than pleasant. When this mind develops in this kind of way and all experience becomes equally acceptable and interesting, this mind resolves towards a mind of metta because it sees beauty. This becomes a mind of metta. When the mind that's deluded that has difficulty connecting to the mind stream, that has uncertainty in questions, that has difficulty landing anywhere. When this mind starts to settle, starts to trust the capacity to directly know, and moves out of the thinking mind, the speculating mind, the double thinking mind, the questioning, Circular questioning, mind of doubt. This mind moves in the direction of being able to trust its own direct knowing, to open and know directly what is there to be known. It learns to rest in its own understanding and faith and becomes a mind infused with equanimity. When a mind of aversion learns to see that there is suffering in resisting what is present. When it comes to understand that it does not need to do anything with what is unpleasant or difficult, that it goes away on its own, that it is not threatening, that it does not destroy a self, that it is not about a self, this mind learns to accept with patience what is true in its experience, learns to open and notice what is pleasant, what is easeful, allows that into the mind stream. This mind, when it resolves itself, moves to wisdom. Right? And all these transformations take place through this process of learning to open to, see, allow, and the mind will teach you itself. So I'll just close now by saying, that I wish your deepest aspirations will be completely fulfilled and that you will learn to know and trust the good heart, which is your true nature and you will allow that to transform Your understanding of the conscious mind. Let's sit for a moment. May the merit of the practice we've done be for the liberation of all beings without exception.